Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us today at the first episode kicking off the Untitled Art Podcast, live recording from Miami Beach at Untitled Arts 11th edition. I am Clara Andrade, the Director of Development and Programming at Untitled Art. As a new initiative this year, we count on programming partners taking over a dedicated podcast day. I am delighted to introduce you to our first programming partner, Name, who presents Swamp Archaeologies, a series of three podcasts focusing on the often overlooked and forgotten dimensions of Miami's cultural history. The following episodes will take place at 2 p.m. and at 4 p.m. today, so please don't miss them. Each of them aims to reactivate the memory of some of Miami's vital art scenes from the past 40 years. Natalia Zuluaga and Jim Moreno, co-directors of NAME, will moderate the podcast. And before handing over the mic, I want to thank Natalia and Jean for being part of Untitled Art. NAME is also a first-time Untitled Art exhibitor, so please make sure to visit them at booth B2 in the next sector. And... As well, they have a physical location in South Miami. So inviting everyone also to visit the space in Miami. So I get it over to Eugene. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Clara. And thank you for the invitation to generate these conversations. So to kick this off, it is my pleasure uh, to welcome Danette Francis, who is the founding co-director for the Center for Global Black Studies and was past director of the American Studies Program at the University of Miami. An associate professor of English and a founding member of the Hemispheric Caribbean Studies Collective, her research and writing investigate place, aesthetics, and the cultural politics of the African diaspora. Dr. Francis is the author of Fictions of Feminine Citizenship, Sexuality, and the Nation in Contemporary Caribbean Literature. Uh, and she has also edited quite a number of, of magazine <laughs> journal issues. She's currently working on two book projects, Illegibilities, Caribbean Cosmopolitanisms of the Problem of Form, which is an intellectual history of the Anglophone Caribbean, the transnational literary culture of the Anglophone Caribbean between 1940 and 1970. And her second project, which brings us here today, is called Creole Miami Black Arts in the Magic City. It's a social cultural history of black arts practice in Miami from the 1980s to the present. Um, so I, I think I could start with this question. Uh, and it's that the migration of the 19th, so the radicalization of politics in the Caribbean led to certain kinds of migrations, which were then uh, further enlarged by the civil wars of the 1970s. And this has created an image of Miami as an immigrant city, but a quite white passing Europeanized immigrant city, right? It's the, it's the Miami Gloria Stefan. Uh, and, and that, that is, uh, it's a bit of a mediatic creation because the city is not necessarily that on the ground when you're here. And what that image has done is it's kind of made us forget how much of a black city Miami is. I mean, it was literally built and founded by Bahamian and Southern black workers. Um, so I think one of the goals of our conversation, but just I think one of the goals of intellectual production in the city is to kind of reclaim these histories and generate a more faithful portrait to the cultural production of the city. So with that. Right, <laughs> thanks for that, Jean. I mean, that's, that's a really productive framing and I think a productive framing coming from you with the breadth of sort of 
intellectual knowledge that you have of the city, but the commitment I see on your part of trying to track the various routes and routes of um, Miami's various um, or diverse art histories um, and the art scene. And so with that, I'm delighted to be in conversation. And uh, yes, Miami has a long history of Black cultural production. Um, and part of that history has its origins in the 1970s on my own campus um, when a group of Black art students at UM founded the Miami Black Arts Workshop in 1971. Um, so among the members of that group included the founding member, which is Roland Woods, and he's one of the artists I want to spend a little time dwelling on today, but also artists that are still with us, like Gene Tinney, um, Robert McKnight, still here, um, Kabaya Owen, Bowens, um, she is still here, but in um, North Florida, um, as well as people who are no longer with us, like Donald McKnight um, and Walter uh, Mitchell. So to me, it's important to situate the Miami Black Arts Workshop in the context of um, civil rights and black power. And to say that this is not happening in Miami in a vacuum, but that this is happening nationally and internationally. So we often, I think if people know the history of black art practices in the US, we might stumble upon or we might begin with the Harlem Renaissance. In the 60s and 70s, we know that we're talking about the black arts movement and the black arts movement we think of principally located while it's national, but principally in New York and Chicago. Um, but there were other movements as well that the, the Miami Black Arts Workshop is in conversation with. So there is the Kamang um, Workshop in, um, it's a photography collective that started in 1963 in New York. There is Afrocoba that's 1968 um, in Chicago that has a longer history of mural making from the earlier 60s. But then also there's the Caribbean artists movement that starts in London in the 1967, as you have migration of mostly Anglophone immigrants from the Caribbean doing graduate and undergraduate work in London, confronting the political situation there, and then having, in addition to the sort of public, civic, um, civil rights activities, an artistic response. And so part of what I wanna suggest is that when we think about these artistic movements, they are always in conversation with the civil rights movement of their particular era. And the Miami Black Arts Workshop is not any different in that way. Um, but there are a few things that I want to say about the contours of um, the Miami Black Arts Workshop that are probably not as well featured in how we talk about it. And so one is the role of Catherine Dunham. So Catherine Dunham is an anthropologist, a dancer, that had spent much time doing work, ethnographic and um, dance choreography um, in the Global South. And so the Global South, that is the Caribbean 
as well as um, our U.S. South. And when we see the image of the Miami Black, the foundational moment of the Miami Black Arts Workshop, which um, is a protest that they're having in front of the Lowe Museum on my campus. Um, and basically that is making an argument for the Lowe Museum to show and exhibit Black work by Black artists. Um, and there's an image of Sammy Davis Jr. who is joining them in that protest. And so, of course, because of his visibility and his celebrity, that gets a lot of mileage. But I want to think about the work that Catherine Dunham is doing during that period as the midwife that actually gives birth to this movement. So in an oral history that I conducted with um, Roland Woods, who's one of the members, the founding members of the Miami Black Arts Workshop, he recounts that um, Catherine Dunham was here giving a lecture presentation for the Florida Arts Council. And um, she's staying at the Four Ambassadors Hotel. And she's disappointing, but disappointed by the lack of Black folks in the audience and participating in this Florida Arts Council. And so she goes straight to the University of, the Mi of Miami, or she makes a phone call and says, I want to talk to the chair of the art history department and asks them to put her in conversation with black art students that are at UM at the time. And so four of them go, she talks to them. She basically um, gives them a mandate. You're in this uh, university that's well-resourced you're right down the street or the road from the West Grove, which is a historic underserved black uh, neighborhood. Um, and she's like, use the resources of your university to do something for the local community. And so when many of them recount the history of its founding, it is to Dunham that they go um, and curiously, for me, again, it's to Dunham that shows up in someone like Charles Humes, another artist that I, um, I, I, I write and think about, how she shows up as a creative figure in the, in the national, um, uh, the, the icons that they celebrate um, nationally. So I think that that's, um, her role is important there. Um, and then also, I think what's, all, what's useful for us to think about is place. That although they're on UM's campus, the outfit of the Miami Black Workshop is in Coconut Grove, and they're um, trying to revitalize the neighborhood, beautify the neighborhood um, with art, with murals, with architectural details. Um, so that's happening. So I think that, that that's one way to sort of enter into that conversation. Um, I want to end with just saying about the, the, the Miami Arts Workshop is that they're clearly very invested in civic engagement and they're doing outreach programs like a lot of the other um, uh, Black arts movement uh, during that period. Um, but then they come to an end right around 1985. And to me, that's really um, poignant because it's when other um, 
funding to arts community and programs shut down during the Reagan years, right? So it's not accidental. If we take sort of the long historical view and the national view, you would realize that when they run out of resources, it parallels what's happening across the country as well. Um, they transition to Kumba Collective of South Florida that's still operative. Um, and the two last points is that William Cordova and Marie Vickles are making an important documentary film about the collective that's called Presence on the Lower Frequencies, um, Black Miami Workshop, 1969 to 1985. And then also um, last year, uh, Amy Galpin at the Frost Museum did a retrospective that put in conversation um, artists of the period, um, black and white artists of the period working in Coconut Grove, um, thinking about how Coconut Grove, both sides, east, east and west, was a purposeful place of art making during the period. And so, um, so that's one way to begin a conversation about people who are unearthing this history of not only Black Miami in its Black Miami art making in its um in 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 its early formation, but in relationship to the other artistic movements that are happening around it. Yeah, so I think 1985 is an interesting moment as well because it's also a time where while this the funding is happening in the arts in the city there's also a bit of a consolidation of institutions institutions starting to like gain access right the coca becomes the mocha uh around maybe a little bit later but you know it's this this process is starting and so as kind of new institutions are kind of taking form uh there's a new kind of migrant influx right all the cuban artists of the late 80s early 90s come and so that becomes the material with which these institutions uh, begin to develop their programming. So, uh, so then this is also a way to not deal with that history institutionally, mm -hmm. because now you have uh, an exciting new wave of, of Cuban artists and, you know, the books are coming out and globally they're being, so the institutions kind of fix on that and leave this history aside as well. Okay, so that's a, a really good segue to talk about the work of Roland Woods, Jr. Um, so Roland Woods, as I mentioned earlier, is a part of the, a, a founder, a co-founder of the Miami Black Arts Workshop. And he's a student at UM at the time, but he's also living in the West Grove. And as he tells it, he's walking around the city with a notebook or walking around the neighborhood with a notebook, um, writing what he's seeing, right? So in addition to visualizing what he's seeing and the artwork that he's going to produce, he's also sort of taking careful notes. And that's one of the things I find curious about the Black artists that I've been working with and encounter here in Miami. So... I, um, Charles Humes right now is the um, artist in residence at the University of Miami Center for Global Black Studies. And every time you see Charles, he has a book in his hand, like a book about 
um, maybe a diasporic take on Africa, uh, some book of knowledge making. So it's interesting to me that they're always booked. Um, but Roland Woods is more, 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 more commonly known for his geometric forms um, that's producing political themes during the period. So one of the pieces that he produces at the time is, is in 1977, and it's a Pitts and Lee imprint where he's memorializing the wrongful conviction of Freddie Pitts and Wilbur Lee, two black men who were imprisoned for the 1963 killing of two white men um, without evidence to support their conviction. And although another white man had con uh, confessed to this by 1966, it took till 1975 for the Florida governor um, to issue a pardon. So um, that's one of the big pieces that um, uh, Roland is known for during the period, but he has a quieter series that I'm actually quite fixated on. And it's called, um, it's called uh, The Street Series. And to me, what's interesting about this series of works that he does um, is that what you see are Black folks inhabiting the streetscape of Coconut Grove so that they're spilling out from the bars onto the street. They're occupying the street um, as, a, as a gateway between um, a vibrant business culture and a street culture. You're seeing um, these forms as voluptuous, especially the women um, and the way that they're rendered. Um, you see gazes, like uh, black gaze, um, men and women returning the gaze. You see men with their arms akimbo, um, and basically, for me, I love this series because you just see the vibrancy of Black life occupying spaces in Coconut Grove during this period. And for me, it's kind of reminiscent of Archibald Motley's work, where you see Motley, where Motley's work is mostly focusing on Black folks in Chicago, inside venues of sociality. So inside the club, inside the dance hall. Here you see um, uh, Roland Woods doing something similar for um, Miami. But interestingly, I think as well, is that his figures are outside. And if you think of um, Miami, the, 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 the colors are often think of, of tropicality. We're thinking of bright, bright hues. And he goes with a very muted palette. And so I think all of those things, that kind of muted vitality and vibrancy that just sort of captures the everyday living of people in Miami or Black people in Miami um, is important about that particular series that... Um, I, the only time I've seen it shown was in um, Amy Galpin's uh, Place and Purpose exhibition. But it's, it's really quite something, I think, to, um, to, to encounter. And it's saying a lot about um, the way Black folks then um, engage the streets. I think what's an important transition to move from 
his work, for example, to Charles Humes's work, is that there's a transition, I would argue, that goes from the vibrancy of Black folks in the street in a neighborhood like Coconut Grove to actually the porch series, to focusing on Black folks in the porch, to focusing on the courtyard. So you already see this restriction of movement, this movement away from vitality and vibrancy in the street and that being an object of something that you are going to capture artistically to something that recedes to the more intimate, to the more um, sort of a more constrained locality. And that's one of the things that I see in Charles's work. And then again here, you see him focusing um, on the gaze of uh, Black folks looking out at whoever is viewing them. And then I think um, there's a series that he has called um, All Eyes on You, which looks at, again, another interior kind of bar scene where the woman is confronting the gaze of the male, other black male, other black men looking at, looking at her. Um, so so there's, a, there's a body of, of work that I think if we're tracking from, let's say, someone like uh, Roland Woods to then someone like Charles Humes, that you're seeing a movement from a sort of auto-ethnographic largeness of what it means to be um, Black occupying public space in the 60s and 70s to then this receding to um, the interiority. A lot of Charles Humes's work, for example, focuses on interiors, focuses on women, um, domesticity. And then I think also importantly about his work is that he's always naming um, his, his, the, his subjects, right? So I think that that's a really important, these aren't anonymous people on the street. These people have names, Simonette's place, um, where he's taking us to inside someone's home. He's taking us to a particular ritual. He's taking us to a backyard barbecue. And so I think that's also important about what Humes is doing. On the political side, I think as well, he's capturing during that period um, the plight of Haitian migrants. And I think that that's also impor important. But yes, none of that's getting taken up, not getting represented by galleries. And so someone like Charles Humes and both Roland Woods actually don't get gallery representation. Um, now Charles Humes is, is um, experienced a resurgence early in his career when, when although he was showing work, he couldn't make a living by that so that he then became a public school teacher um, teaching the arts um, in Miami-Dade County. And so he has, um, so some of the most acclaimed artists like Morel Doucet, for example, he had a hand in training this generation of um, young emerging black artists. And so now in retirement, he gets to turn around and return full-time to studio practice. And now, like someone like Roland Woods, no, so like someone like um, Robert McKnight and now Charles, they are beginning to get that kind of public visibility in their own city and elsewhere. And I think it's really important, right, that we acknowledge 
and see this generation and the intervention that they've made into the landscape, not only for the social history that they're documenting, that you can get to see, for example, a history of Black Coconut Grove in Roland's work and a history of Liberty City um, in Charles's work from 1970s to the present. So yes, now they're getting the much due um, recognition in the twilight of their careers. And again, this isn't exceptional. This is something that happens um, with other Black artists. And so I just think that, especially in this moment of um, Basel buzz, um, it's important to sort of slow the pace and sort of think through the sustained history of professional trained Black artists that were not only professionally trained in the case of Roland at University of Miami and Charles at Florida State, but that then it has generational legacies that we end up seeing in the students they train. And I can, and I'll say something a little later about um, Charles's daughter, who's a filmmaker, who you see an intergenerational conversation where we begin to see how she pushes back on how we position the gaze. She pushes back on some of the sort of gendered assumptions that might be seen in her father's work. And so you get to see this intergenerational gender dialogue. And so again, there is a, a through line if we sort of think through um, particular historical artistic figures that may not have the kind of visibility um, of the, 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 the folks that get circulated, um, but there's a, a generational history of professionally trained Black artists here in Miami that have consistently been doing the work. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about how you've gone about presenting this is that an, an, easy, an easy shortcut could be to just think of a monolithic Black cultural production and not understand the West Grove and Liberty City are very different social realities. And there's other spaces like Overtown, which we haven't talked about, which each have, you know, they're founded for different reasons. Folks end up there for different, so it's, so the easy way would be to be like black Miami work as this homogenous thing. And that actually totally falsifies the history in that, yeah, what we've been seeing of the images just don't add up to that. Uh, and then there's other folks like, you know, Farron, who you talk about, you know, Purvis, who's kind of become emblematic of Overtown. And they're just very different, both very different modes of production or, or expressive means, but also uh, indexing very different social realities. Um, so I think that that's an important aspect to keep in mind, right? It's not, we didn't just find now black art as this one thing, and now we're just going to correct the record. The record itself has to be immensely complex and textured because that's what the work is telling us. Right. And so initially, I think that if you, I think nationally there was a moment where when we saw Black Miami post 2017, we were seeing Liberty City because of Moonlight, right? Um, and so... Liberty City gets positioned as the most recent space that captures the national imagination to tell a monolithic story about Black Miami. 
And what the work of Farron Humes, who's the youngest of the artists that I'm, I think about here, and she is a filmmaker, um, what Farron argues is that in Liberty City, you have the tentacles of the broader Black Miami so that you can track the various migrations from the West Grove, perhaps into Overtown, from over, being displaced from Overtown, moving into Liberty City, moving into Liberty City in a moment where it's considered a suburban place. Um, and then what becomes of Liberty City in, in its current iteration, but also what it means for someone like Charles Humes to have been born in Liberty City. Um, and then when Farron is born, she's born in Little River. And then they moved to Carroll Gardens, which is now Miami, Carroll City, which is now Miami Gardens. And so what you see, if you sort of pay attention to the biographies of the artists as well, is that um, they trap the multiple sort of migratory um, trajectories or uh, rivers, right, that's moving through um, the city over different historical moments. And so just to sort of very briefly talk about Farron's story and what she offers in terms of contemporary representation of um, Black Miami and Liberty City in particular. Um, but actually I would say two things about Farron and then her father as well, is that yes, um, it's you're getting stories about Black Miami, but for both of them, they're also telling stories of North Florida, which is to say, she would argue that many people, many black folks in Miami have roots to the upper South, right? So that although they are living in the urban core, they have family in North Florida. And in her case, it's Sanderson, Florida. And so you'll see as much in Charles's work as well as Farron's work about that rural landscape. And so if, for example, you see seascape and streetscapes in Miami, um, in their Miami-centered work, there you're seeing lots of rural long stretches of, of land, what it means to occupy that land, um, what it means to be a Black gun owner is something that they're thinking and talking about. Um, what it means to think about questions of, um, in one of Farron's films, she's asking the question of a different kind of black masculinity in the rural South, as opposed to what we might think of um, in the urban corridor. Um, and so what I find productive about Farron's work though, is we're beginning to have a series of um, films, short films being produced by largely um, some of her contemporaries that are taking on and thinking about um, Liberty City and Black male life in Liberty City or Black family life in Liberty City. And they become in some ways what she and I talk about as a kind of family romance, right? So to, to correct the ills in terms of how people think and imagine um, Liberty City, they want to focus on 
oh, we cook here, we play here, we dance here. Um, look at this um, Norma, our Black Norman Rockwell version of what it means to inhabit this space. And so while Farron isn't rejecting that outright, she in many ways pushed back, um, pushes back against that. So I think about this new film that she's working on that's called Don't Stop, Get It, Get It. And for those of you who know Miami, you know that again here she's using um, the title of a Luther Campbell um, song, right? So she's again in this intergenerational conversation with iconic moments and iconic themes and in, in, in ways that we see um, Black Miami. But in Don't Stop, Get It, Get It, she she's just, you know, so far we just have a few images um, that she's sharing with the public. But one of those images is with um, a Black woman, an older Black woman that's sitting at the edge um, of her um, doorway, right? So um, you're never given access into the in her interiority. You're never given access into her home space. She's sitting right there in the edge of the doorway. So it's not quite the porch. It's this anterior room. It's not a Florida room. Um, so it's this anteroom that's right um, in the portal between the porch and her house. And she's sitting there. And what Farron does is that you're just sitting with her for three minutes, watching her movements. And literally, she's just sitting. Maybe she'll get up. She'll go to the window. She'll look out the window. Um, but it, it, there is no action happening here. Um, and what she's inviting us to do is to sit with these women in the midst of um, Liberty City being um, in the midst of being demolished on the one hand and lotteries being offered to some people who will get to uh, come back and live in this, these places they once called home. There's a, there's a, there's a band of um, homes that have not yet been demolished and all of those homes are inhabited by single, older Black women, right? So these were the matriarchs of the community. And so in the male versions of these narratives, these are, oh, my grandma's class is no longer here, or oh, my grand, you know, and so there's this romance of what they have lost when she is gone. And what Farron asks us to think about as she conducts oral histories with them are what are the needs of these matriarchs? And so in her oral histories, um, the women said, you know, well, I would, I feel lonely. I would like a hug. I would like human contact. And so in the film, she writes in this troubadour scene where once a week, a young woman comes walking through the neighborhood, through that strip, and she's singing. So immediately, sonically, that registers for the older, for the elders that, this is their moment. This is when they're going to get their hugs. Um, and so one by one, they come out and she greets them and she hugs them for, you know, maybe two minutes. And then she goes on to the next scene. And for me, this is important because it's disrupting a lot of the narratives um, that we talk, that we, that we have about um, Black female resilience, um, the Black matriarch. 
um, what caretaking looks like and um, what are what are the needs, right? So rather than focusing on resilience all the time, she's here thinking about vulnerability and needs. And so I think that that's an important way in which she's engaged in this conversation with her contemporaries, for sure, people who have come before her, but saying that there's more that the, underneath the surface and that she wants to dwell with, sit with, and filmically just spend time, slow time, on um, these women and their stories, even if there's nothing really happening in the story beyond a hug. And so that, I think, is just so... Um, really just radical for a filmmaking practice, but I think also for the, the comfortable ways in which we think to, to, to write a narrative that seems over, that seems superimposed with lots of negatives means that we have to sort of fill it with a lot of positivity. Um, and what she fills it with is desire and meeting that desire and saying what care looks like as an artistic process. Yeah, and I think that's that's a great place to end in that uh, we're talking about a film that doesn't exist yet, right? So we're talking yeah. about the, the, fu <laughs> the futurity. <laughs> Very of, speculative. Of what we're, you know, what we came to discuss, we're, we're actually, we're, we've, we're just claiming right now if it's futurists here as well. Yeah. So I think it's a good place to to end this. So Danette, thank you so much. This was great. Yep. Thank you.